Thank you, Jonathan. And as you are standing here in this service, or perhaps in the overflow, or in the masked-only venue, or you're at home, uh, I invite you to take your Bible and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Now, for several weeks, I believe this is sermon number 10 in this series that we are doing through the book of 1 Thessalonians. And it has been uh, an incredible study for me personally. I have gleaned a lot. I hope that we will continue to glean truths, not just for a startup church, if you will, that um, was around several thousand years ago, but for us who are believers in Jesus Christ here at Heritage Baptist Church. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, now it says verses 3 through 5, I'm going to go back to verse 1, and we're going to read all the way through verse 5, and uh, for those of you who have not been here, after we read this, I will introduce some thoughts and give a little recap so you can be up to snuff, hopefully, with where we are in this study in 1 Thessalonians. Listen to what Paul the, the Apostle says as a, a kind of interlude. He, he is really up on the church at Thessalonica, but he has some very real concerns, and he's going to be mentioning these in this passage of Scripture. In fact, You'd have to back up to chapter 2, verse 17 to see the whole context, but we will begin reading in chapter 3 and verse 1. Listen, listen to the heart of the Apostle Paul in his concern about the church and some of the specific concerns that he has. Therefore, he says, when we could bear it no longer. Now, this is him and his two co-workers, Silas and Timothy. When we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind in Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker, in the gospel of Christ to do a couple of things, he says. We wanted to make sure that you were established and that you were exhorted in your faith. Why? so that no one among you might be moved by these afflictions. This is not the first time he's mentioned it, but he brings it up again. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason... When I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about, and he makes it again very personal, your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Father, it's always good to read and to sing Scripture and then to look at what you have said long ago that applies even to today. We thank you that we can look at this passage of Scripture that fits into the, the bigger picture of what Paul is saying to the church at Thessalonica. And Lord, help us. We, we never, ever want to hold 
these things, these truths from your word at arm's length. We want to bring them close in. We want to examine them and and mull them over so that they can find their way through our minds, into our hearts, and ultimately out into our words and our actions, all of our deeds that we do. So, Lord, help us today, every one of us, to take in and then to respond and to act on the things that we are learning. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm going to ask you a question. I don't need a show of hands, okay? Do you believe in conspiracy theories? Uh, 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 no, no testimonies. What do you think when you hear the words conspiracy theory? Do you think of crazy people? wearing tinfoil hats with absolutely ridiculous ideas about some mysterious they who are out to get us? What is a conspiracy anyway? Well, I looked up in the dictionary, a conspiracy is an agreement between two or more people. Now, in the context of this, and you're going to see where I'm going in just a minute, We're going to have to expand that definition. I think one person can initiate it, and I'm not going to say people. I'm going to say entities, all right? That gives you a little bit of a hint as to where we're going, where Paul is going in this passage of Scripture. But it's an agreement between two or more people to do something criminal, illegal, or just reprehensible. When you hear the word conspiracy theory, you probably think of a secret backroom deal, people colluding, conspiring, plotting, and the purpose is always the same. By the way, you might ought to change the word from conspiracy since that has such a bad connotation and just call it a collusion. But the the purpose is always the same. The purpose is always either for power, wealth, or pleasure. Hmm, does that remind you of something? The three basic temptations that Satan used in the garden, that Satan used against our Lord Jesus Christ, that he still uses today according to 1 John. You know, I've been reading through, and I'm going to allude to this at the uh, end of the message today. I've been reading through uh, as a part of my quiet time. Now, by the way, let me just put a plug in here. If you don't have a regular quiet time where you sit down and read the Scriptures and you pray, you have a conversation with God, I highly recommend it. Because God takes His Word, not just on a Sunday morning in an ABF or a Sunday school class, in big church or at home where you're studying with us or in another venue, he doesn't just take his word then and speak to you. He uses his word to speak to you that day whenever you had the quiet time. Anyway, I've, I've been reading in my quiet times through First and Second Kings. Now, if you don't believe in conspiracy theories, or why don't we call them like this, collusion hypotheses, just read First and Second Kings. Now, 
I, here's what's amazing. These folks are the people of God. We're not talking about the, the people, the pagan nations out there. We're talking about Israel and, and Judah. We're talking about the covenant people of God. And I was reading through, oh, just in the last couple of weeks, and it just is one plot after another, one collusion after another. A king comes into power, sometimes people and, and sometimes even his own kids, they collude together and they kill him. And then another king comes up and it's just over and over again. And I, I really did, I thought of the, to describe what was going on in that place, in that time, I thought of the words of the prophet Obi-Wan Kenobi. He wasn't really a prophet, okay, kids? But when he was describing in the very first Star Wars installment, and he was describing Moss Eisley, does anybody remember that? Then he turned to Luke and he said about Moss Eisley, and I was thinking, this is the way Judah and Israel were, a wretched hive of scum and villainy. The Bible is full of plots to do evil. From the very get-go, when Jesus started his ministry, the powers that be got together, and it says specifically they plotted together how they might kill him. So let me just say this about all of the conspiracy theories that are going on right now that have gone on just think back a couple of months or years ago, the things that were the conspiracy theories, we never hear about those anymore. We've got a whole new set of brand new ones. Okay, so here's my counsel for you, all of you. Don't be gullible. That's over here. That's on the left. But over here, don't be bullied. Do your homework. Do your research, okay? Amen. Now, with all of that, that sounded rather political. It really was not. It's just practical. With all of that, what we're going to look at today is an incredible, well, I was just about to say conspiracy theory. No, it's a collusion hypothesis, except it's not a hypothesis. In this message that we are going to look at we're going to see revealed that there is a plot that has been hatched to bring you down, Christian. I'm talking to Christians now. There is a plot that has been hatched to ruin your marriage, to obliterate this church, destroy your witness. Also in this message, and it's not going to be exhaustive. That, that should be patently obvious. We're not going to be able to get to everything. But I want to show you, and this is what Paul the Apostle did. He wanted the people of God to be prepared. Okay? And so he talks about it. And then I'm just going to give one brief application about how you can overcome it. You'll see that in, in, in chapter uh, 3, verse 5, it, it ends, at least in my Bible, there's a, it wasn't like this in the original, it was all one letter, but in my Bible, they break it up. And so the break here 
ends in, in verse 5, and then it's almost a new thought. Well, it's not a new thought, but it's very helpful that we'll come back to this next Sunday, the Lord willing. Because Paul ends on kind of a sad note. He, he, he fears that maybe his ministry had been in vain. Listen, anybody who's in ministry at some point comes to a place and asks the question, has my ministry meant anything? I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. And here's Paul, again, the great apostle Paul, who is wondering that exact thing. Now, let me give a review for those of you who have not been with us through chapter 1 and chapter 2, and we're going to do our best to run all the way through chapter uh, chapter 5 of this uh, particular epistle and then go to the epistle of the the second Thessalonians. The primary thing that you need to, to hear and to understand, again, is that Paul is He's concerned about the spiritual welfare of the church. I put this verse up, these couple of verses, this last week. This is a summary of what Paul wants. For you as an individual Christian and for us as a church. Number one, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, he mentions this a little bit later on in chapter 4. And I'm telling you, as I've studied ahead on that, that is a mind-blowing passage of Scripture. But let's generalize. Let's step away and use his first statement out of chapter 4, verse 3, where he says, God's will is your sanctification, yours individually. What does that mean? It means that you look more like Jesus. It means that you grow in personal holiness and that we grow as a church in our own sanctification, that we as a church look more like Jesus. And then the second thing that he mentioned, so we, we know that's, that, that's God's will for us, and that's what Paul is all over here. The second thing is, that was vertical. We, we become more in love with God. The horizontal relationship, though, is this. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. That was the substance of last week's message. And how in these trying times that we can learn to live with one another, even though our point of view may be very, very different. So that's what he's after. Now, the question is, from this particular passage of Scripture, verses 3 through 5, was there a conspiracy, a collusion, a plot against them, the church at Thessalonica, to stop them? And the answer is yes. So last week, we discovered that Paul is willing to do whatever it takes, even at the expense of his own plans, his personal comfort, to make sure that this little band of believers in Thessalonica is two things. And we looked at it in verse 2. We went back to verse 2, that he wanted them to be established and encouraged in their own faith. Now, this is interesting. He doesn't say the faith. He personalizes it. And that's what we need to do. You know, so often it's easy in church to keep the Word of God, again, at arm's length. It just says what it says, and that's a nice idea. But Paul always is concerned about how are you engaging with the Word of God that has been delivered to you. 
He's really not so concerned that you have a set of facts in your mind, even that you think are good facts and that you try to follow in a reformed kind of view. He is really concerned about your faith. Make this personal, folks, so that they can understand, number one, that there is a conspiracy against them, and number two, that they can do something about it. And so he sends Timothy. You see that in, again in verse 2. And Timothy is sent there to establish and to encourage them. So, how's he going to do that? I find this so interesting. Not only to ask the question, how will Timothy establish and encourage them, but I, I, I always am thinking about you. How will God, through a servant maybe, like Timothy, but how will God establish you and encourage you. Does anybody need their, their faith strengthened? Okay. Does anyone need to be encouraged in their faith? And so he does it through the gospel, through the word. Let, let's just go back to chapter 1 and verse 5. And I, I love this passage of Scripture. And let me say just a couple of things about this. When Paul came to the church at Thessalonica, remember, he was in Asia. He had the vision. A man in Macedonia was calling him. He goes over, makes his way to Philippi, and then he gets run out of town. A riot erupts, and he gets run out of town, and he ends up in Thessalonica, and they present the Word of God. And in case you didn't know this, if you haven't been with us, he was there for three weeks, three weeks And he gave them something so that they could be saved and then their salvation could be grown. And he says, our gospel. Now, over and over again, and we saw this several lessons ago, where the gospel is equal to the word. Okay? And he says it. Our gospel came to you not just in the word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. When Paul the Apostle left after three weeks, what could he leave behind? Other Christians? No, he took Silas and Timothy with him. These were three-week-old baby Christians when he left town, when he got run out of town more accurately. Could he leave some good follow-up materials? maybe he could recommend a blog site to go to. Hey, go to this blog site. because This guy is a great blogger. No, all he could leave them was the Word. Now, some people say, and this is so strange, well, they didn't have the Word back then. Yes, they did. They had all of the Old Testament Scriptures, and over and over again, Jesus and the apostles used the Old Testament to teach about Jesus and His coming and His salvation that He offered. So He left with these new believers, many of them pagan, and it says that because they came out of idolatry. He left them not only the Word, now get this, but the Holy Spirit. Wow. I can give to you the Word. I know I can stand up here and I can jump around and I can flutter and sputter and all the rest of that, and I can give you the Word, which I'm doing right now, but I pray every week because I know that without the Holy Spirit, 
taking His Word and driving it like pile drivers into your heart, it will not make a difference in your life and in your family and in your marriage and in your church and in your world. And so Paul left that which could change everything, something that would inform the way that they thought. Christian, what do you have that informs the way you think? It's the Word of God. It's the Holy Spirit. So that not only the way you think, but what you say, what you do, how you react to everything in life. And I've used this this picture along the way. We've got a little slice in time right now in our history, our, our little slice of history right now that's very, very interesting. But don't you get the idea that it's somehow so different from everything all throughout history that Christians have gone through, maybe not exactly the same, but as much affliction and temptation and persecution. And all through the ages, Christians have needed these two things, the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And so Paul says these stunning words when we come to verse 5. He says he doesn't want his labor, his ministry, to be in vain. He knew they had started well, but affliction had come. Now, here's a truth. We're going to come back to this. The most important thing about your faith, listen, please, the most important thing about your faith is not how you started. You might have started off with a bang, with great joy. That's not the most important thing. The most important thing is how are you doing now? And how will you end? In other words, will you endure? So, I believe Paul gives great help to the, Thessalonica, uh, the church at Thessalonica by sending Timothy, telling, telling all this stuff. We're going to find out again in the rest of chapter 3 and chapter 4, Timothy brings back good news, but Paul wasn't so sure. So, we've got three things on the outline, okay? As we're going through verses 3, 4, and 5. And it's not only what Paul can do. In sending Timothy, it's not only what Timothy do, can do. I've been asking the question all week as I've prepared this, what can I do to help you? And then what can you take away from this message to help other people? Okay? So here we go. Verse 3. Paul says something pretty incredible, that no one be moved by these afflictions for What? You yourselves know that we are destined for this? Christian, let me let you in on a secret in case you've been going to another church that teaches another gospel that, that, that is very, very similar, but it never ever preaches or teaches anything about affliction. When you became a Christian, I want to tell you, this was not fine print. This is what you signed up for. A lot of churches, I say a lot, I don't want to... I don't want to thump us on the chest and, oh, we're better than anyone else. But there are churches in our land that do not want you to hear that you, Christian, will go through temptation, persecution, and affliction. 
Now, let me let you in on a little insight in case there's not a, there happens to be someone who's not a Christian here today. And you might be thinking, oh, I can avoid that then. I just won't become a Christian. That way I won't have temptation, persecution, and affliction. Well, guess what? Even if you're not a follower of Christ, you're going to be involved with temptation, persecution, and affliction. You're going to have these anyway. Now, that word affliction, it's, it's a word that is used so often in the New Testament, a very picturesque word. You can go through a lot of different things. It basically means squeezing, pressures that threaten to crush you. These can be unsettling, and that's what Paul was concerned about. He said, I don't want you to be moved because of these afflictions. They can unsettle you. They can shake you. Right, Christian? So that you may be tempted to fall away from the right path. Now, Paul was genuinely concerned. Let me show you this verse because it is the reality. I said this a minute ago. This is what you signed up for. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Now, Paul's thought was when they encounter affliction, is that going to shake them? Now, remember, he wanted to be helpful. And one of the most helpful things that he could say to them is that, Christian, your affliction is appointed. If you don't like that word, if, that's, if that is a little bit strong for you, if that smacks a little bit too much of the sovereignty of God in everything. So if you don't like appointed, then at least use allowed. Every affliction is appointed slash allowed by God. Either way, it remains the same. No matter what you're going through, you understand that this is a component of the Christian life. By the way, this was, this was what Paul did. First missionary journey. And he's going back through. And he wants to do what? Two things. This is so consistent with Paul. Newfound faith. He wants to encourage them and establish them. So how does he strengthen the souls of the disciples? Now, again, according to much or, or at least some of the preaching that is popular today, this would not be seen as strengthening the souls of the disciples. But Paul, knowing that this was the truth, encouraged them to continue in the faith by saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Now listen to me. Your particular affliction doesn't matter as much as how you respond to it. Just write this down and underscore it. You can't, for the most part, I'll put that little disclaimer in there, you cannot, for the most part, choose your affliction. But you can choose how you respond to it. And what does James say? We preach through the book of James, remember? And this is a theme. 
James, um, when I first started the book, I thought, oh my, I don't know if the people are going to like the, the book of James. He's kind of a, man, he's tough. He's kind of a Debbie Downer. I, you know, he, he just, but he says it straight. Look at it. He's, he was an apostle of joy. Count it all joy. Consider it all joy. All joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And he goes on to give a reason for that. So one of the most helpful things that I can tell you and then you can take and you can share it with others who are in affliction is that God appoints. Is that what it says? You yourselves know that we were destined for this. Very helpful. Let's go on to the second thing. Verse 4. You say, wow, Marty's already in the second point. We're going to get through early, not so fast. Okay, here's where I want to personalize this. And I wondered, okay, destined for an immovable afflictions. That's what God wants for you. Remember, you can't choose your affliction. You can just choose how you respond. So let me ask you a question. It's in that growing out of verse 4. Does your ministry... Encourage and strengthen believers by informing them of affliction to come. Now, here's basically what was going on. Paul's ministry by sending Timothy was basically what we call follow-up. Another word that we could use is discipleship. Christians can be and will be afflicted and tempted by the tempter. I read a quote this last week. I thought it was very helpful. Hopefully, it'll just be one of those things that you can hang on to. For the child of God, there are no accidents, just incidents. For the child of God, there are no accidents, only incidents. Now, I'm quoting, normally I quote out of the Bible that I'm using right now as a study Bible, the English Standard Version, the ESV. But for this, I I, I went back because the ESV puts it in a little bit different light than the New American Standard Version of the Bible, which is my personal favorite. There are a lot of versions of the Bible, and and, you you, you can get the basic meaning, but this puts the ball a little bit more than the ESV and in God's court, which I believe that this is what Paul is saying. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good, not for everybody out there, but for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. Is that helpful? Uh Uh-oh, I'm in trouble. Is that helpful? That you know that God has a purpose. Earlier, we just said that God destined us for this. But if we know that somehow, even though it is a horrible affliction that you're going through, if somehow God is involved in it for a purpose of doing something in you and through you, not only individually, but in, again, and we expand these in your relationship with your family, 
in your relationships, at work, in your relationship, particularly in the church of Jesus Christ, that all things work together for good. Why? Because God makes them do so. Uh, there is a saying. Write down this saying. You may want to write it down. It comes from the military, and many different branches of the military use it. Forewarned is forearmed, Ed, from a military guy. Forewarned is forearmed. In other words, the prior knowledge, listen to this, the prior knowledge of possible danger gives you a tactical advantage. If you know about something before it happens, then you can, you can be prepared for it. And that's why we're on. In this letter, Paul is going to say, look, we belong to the day, so be sober. You know the war is coming. You know the fight is coming. So let's go ahead and suit up. Go out. I can do the pre-checks on your, on your aircraft. Make sure all of the ordnance is on there and ready to go. Forewarned is forearmed. And that's why it says, for when, look, look at this in verse 4, when we, for when we were with you, we kept telling you. I, I, I just get a picture of this in Paul's messages for three weeks. And over and over again was the warning, you're going to experience affliction. I wonder if any of those believers in that church, that little fledgling church probably meeting in someone's house, I wonder if any of them, fairly immature response, but when he started saying that, they kind of rolled their eyes. Here he goes again. It's the warfare motif. Come on, Paul. Give us a break. Tell me that God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. Gee, Give me some of this best life now. I, I'm tired of hearing. Listen, forewarned is forearmed. If, the, if the, the, the guys that were in charge of the Titanic, they were forewarned. They just didn't take it seriously. And I wonder how many Christians sometimes, when we're forewarned, we just don't take it seriously. And so therefore, we hit the icebergs of life. Do you know why I require premarital counseling? I used to do a lot of weddings. Most of the younger guys do the weddings now. But I require premarital counseling before I do a wedding. Do you know why? Because forewarned, uh-huh, Let me give you, I started with three of these, and I ended up with six. I've got six bullet points. Try to get through these. I told you it's going to kind of expand. We'll get to the last point in just a minute. But here are some things I think that can help you to be forewarned, okay? Real quick, you can jot these down. You can ask me for my notes. I'll send you the PowerPoint. 
um, whatever. Understand some things. This is expanding on this. This is taking the seed thought, forewarned is forearmed. And here are some really, really helpful scriptural realities that you probably need to have for yourself. And if you've got all this under control, then you need this so you can help other people. Number one, God is not tempting you with pain. Whatever you're going through, God may be ultimately behind it, but he's not out to wreck you, test you, purify you, bring you more into the image of Christ, Romans 8, 28, absolutely. But God is not tempting you so that you will fall away. That's what the tempter does. That's his mission. We'll get to that in a second. James reminds us, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Christian, please. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Anything that you're going through is for your ultimate growth. Second, now I, I want to be uh, really careful with how I say some things here, and this would be a good point of discussion. Come back in case I, I don't say it correctly, but I think this is huge. From a scriptural perspective, be a student and not a victim of pain. Okay? Romans 5, Paul says, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Again, the whole the thing of God having a plan behind it, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope. Please, please hear me. Shake out the cobwebs. If someone is in pain and has gone through an affliction, and sometimes the church has not done a real good job with this, stop and listen. And try not to fix it right there. I'm a fixer. You can ask my family. And many of you people are not just men. That's not just a man thing. That's just however you're wired. But there are some things where you just need to stop and you need to listen and you need to probe and, and maybe help that person get to what's behind this pain. What, what affliction have you gone through? And, and there are people that sometimes, I, this is me, I think that I have come into church and I've just assumed that everybody's life is just like you look today, great. And there are people that come into this room and there are people that have been here in the past and they are so hurting and, and they can't get me, they can't get a Christian just to sit down and listen. But now let me go to the other side. If, you, if you've hurt, if you've been afflicted, if you've been you've gone through something horrible. Don't become a victim. Become a student. This is what God is trying to teach you in whatever affliction that you're going through. Don't let pain, listen, don't let pain become your identity.
David never denied that he was hurting. But in every psalm, when he said, I'm hurting, he always came back to his identity in the Lord God. Some people go through life as professional victims. Always talking about how they've been mistreated. Now again, that is very true and we need to listen, but there, becomes a, there comes a point at which we need to look inside. Perpetual victimhood will always doom you to a life of self-centered misery. And any of you who have gone a little bit into that, you know exactly what I mean. Feeling sorry for yourself rather than looking to what God says and, and seeking the healing, the overcoming joy, the hope. A victim generally just blames others. A student learns from hard times. I've got several others written down, but I, I'm just not going to read them. Do you, do you get the point? I've really wanted to say that correctly. Listen, when don't overlook the hurts of others, but help others to apply Scripture so they can work through that. Here's, well, I, I did write down something from A.W. Tozier. It's not on your quotes in here. Those are some great quotes. But A.W. Tozier said, Before God can use a person greatly, he must allow that person to be hurt deeply. So take heart in your affliction. Third thing. Pain doesn't have to be your enemy. This is very much related to what we just said. Pain doesn't have to be your enemy. Paul learned this. He said, he was out of a conversation with God. I don't like this affliction. But God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness, Paul. Therefore, Paul said, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ rests on me. Pain can lead you to Christ is the ultimate source of your strength. Here's a fourth thing. Pain enlarges your heart for God. Pain enlarges your heart for God's love. Romans chapter 5 says, More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, we said this a minute ago, endurance produces character, character produces hope, but we didn't fill in the blank. Hope does, watch this, does not put us to shame because the ultimate goal of God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Pain can enlarge your heart for God's love. Fifth thing, pain equips you for ministry. Wow, let me just remind you, and most of you know this passage of Scripture out of 2 Corinthians 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Why? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. That's a mouthful, but here is basically what it means. And I, I just, I, I, I look at you, and, and I was thinking this morning, 
There, there are some of you who have been through the things that I, I can't even imagine. But I'll tell you, whatever I go through, having watched the way some of you went through the afflictions that were upon you, that gives you the opportunity to relate to me. I'm going to seek you out. I've said this before. I, and, and there are so many different kinds of afflictions. I, Jan and I have talked about this. The, the thought of now, you, you know, used to, we would say a child, losing a child. Now a grandchild is beyond any kind of affliction that I that I can even comprehend. But I'll guarantee that if that happened, and you know who you are, and I, I know who you are, there would be some of you, all of you would give me great comfort and, and counsel. You would put your arms around me. You wouldn't care about social distancing then, I hope. You'd put your arms around me and you would say, I love you and I'm sorry. But there are several of you I would seek out. Because you've been there. Loss of a spouse, the loss of... You know, I, I could just talk about any number of things. Do you, get, do you get what I'm talking about? You can help others, other Christians. People out there who are not saved, they're not going to get this. But pain equips you for ministry. And then the last thing, I hope I haven't worn you out. Maybe I should have stuck with three. Now, all six are important. Present pain does not compare with future glory. You know that. Paul said it, 2 Corinthians, our outer self is wasting away. Oh my, as we get older, don't we know it? It's wasting away and <laughs> getting patched up and <laughs> all the rest of those kinds of things. But hey, look, inner self is being renewed day by day, I hope. It won't happen. Put another plug in for the quiet time. It's not going to happen without the Word and the Spirit and without the fellowship of the body of Christ for light momentary affliction. Now, you've got to back up. If you haven't read this whole passage of 1 Corinthians 4, read it later on and talk with your family about it. Read some of the things that Paul went through, and he calls them light and momentary afflictions, are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. Six things that can help. Last thing, last application, verse 5. Afflicted faith, I'm just going to roll this all together in verse 5 because Paul talks about afflicted faith, the temptation of the tempter and the possibility of laboring in vain. Now, I can do no more than just hit this uh, with, with a couple of points and perhaps we'll come back and look at it in another place. There's no doubt that Paul has been incredibly encouraged how the believers in Thessalonica got started but what did I say a minute ago? The real issue is not how you start, it's how you endure and how you finish. They were an incredibly vibrant church. I don't have this on a slide. I'm going to give you a parallel passage, but go back to chapter uh, 1 and just listen to verses 6 through 8. This described the church in three weeks after Paul left. And I'll drop down to verse 9. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, 
For you received the word. Boy, that just, that's chocked full. Look at all that they did. You received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers, not only in Macedonia, but Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. And yet Paul was fearful. Have I run in vain? That's not the only time that he's used language like this. He did it in the church at Philippi. Do all things without grumbling, disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. Again, a vibrant congregation, so in, that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. All right. An individual or a church... Okay, an individual or a church that is a vibrant church, and you heard about the way that it can be vibrant, the Word has gone forth, the Word has gone forth, you received the Word, you're living out the Word, that is a threat. Not only a believer, but a church, that is a threat to Satan's stronghold, and he is not going to go quietly. I'm not trying to grandstand. Paul tells them this. Satan poses a clear and present danger. And when affliction comes, Satan will do everything he can. Now watch how he switches it. He goes from calling Satan to calling him the tempter. Folks, he has conspired against you and against the church. His goal is just not to make you uncomfortable. Stop doing that. That's not his goal. His goal is to devour you and to devour us. So last week we identified him, several identifiers. We looked at his resume as a, watch this, global conspirator. All right? He is the original global conspirator. The whole world lies in his grasp. Now, Paul identifies him very specifically and personally in the job that he does best. I, I, hope, I, I hope you'll just hear me for the next couple of minutes. He's conspiring. Not he's making plans to. He is right now conspiring against you. Every conceivable resource. Now, look, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 
every conceivable resource that you can imagine and that you can't imagine is at his disposal as he comes after you. Now, remember, vibrant Christians, vibrant churches. From the garden to the wilderness, back to the garden, up to right now, 11.38 a.m., Sunday morning. He has been, he is at work, and he will be at work. He's persistently engaged in an effort to destroy. He, he know, listen, you can't lose your salvation. He's not going to destroy your faith per se and drive you into hell. He does have a plan for that, that the word that's received with joy can fall away, and this is in the parable of the sower. What are the three things mentioned in that, that shallow-soiled hearer? Temptation, persecution, affliction. And that young plant is baked. Boom, it dies. We're not talking about losing your salvation. Paul, I think, was genuinely concerned are there people who have received the word with great joy, but maybe they had no firm root? Maybe they're not truly believers and will ultimately be found with a dead faith. Not that they lost their salvation, they just never had it. That was Paul's greatest fear. But I think his second fear was that believers in good churches vibrant Christians in vibrant churches will be attacked. The tempter will tempt you. And he'll work on you through affliction. There's a quote in here. We're not going to read it. But he knows your number and will create the temptation through whatever affliction comes your way. But let me just boil it down to this. What, what is the great, probably one of the greatest temptations that we experience right now as Christians? I, I think, I think it's the temptation to despair. I told you I've been reading through 2 Kings and I'm almost through with it. And there's an incredible story. Uh, I'd like you to read it today. And it's so, it is so contemporary. I won't tell you the long version of the story. It's found in 2 Kings 18 and 19. It's the story of King Hezekiah of Judah. Man, what, a, what an incredible, this is an incredible story. Now remember Israel and Judah, and they're both, in, they're, they're a mess. King of Assyria comes against Israel, wipes them off, and takes, takes them out. So it's just Judah who's left. And this young guy named Hezekiah comes to be king at the ripe old mature age of 29. And he initiated a bunch of reforms. Young people, students, wow. God used Hezekiah it says there was none like him before or after, and he went through Judah and he removed idolatry and the Asherah and the high places of worship. He just gutted the place of all the paganism that had infected 
Judah. Then when he was 31, the ripe old age of 31, that's when Israel fell and was taken into captivity. And then when he was 39, I was thinking of some of our 40-something people here. When he was 39 years old, the king of Assyria came after him. And after a temporary period where he kind of drew back and said, okay, I'll give you what you want. By the way, and this is a whole story about plots and things like that. He said, okay, king of Assyria, Sennacherib, I'll give you what you want. If that's a picture of sin, was Sennacherib satisfied with that? Sin never is satisfied. And Sennacherib came after him, and he said, he said, do not depend on this God of yours. I have wiped out every other king, every other nation. You can't depend on God, and don't let any of your leaders tell you that you can depend upon God. And Hezekiah did something. He said he went into the temple and prayed. He just laid out this need before him. I, I think Hezekiah was where a lot of people are, Christians are today, borderline despair. And then he came to a realization, hey, you know what? This thing is big, but my God is bigger. This thing is great, but my God is greater. And that's the one hope that I would give you today in the midst of all of the voices saying despair, despair, despair. We have a God who's working his promise and his purpose. We have the warning that affliction is going to come, but there's always something in that affliction designed for you, designed for others in your path so that they can become more like Christ. So your church can be a shining light in the midst of a dark world. Father, I thank you for the, the truth. Uh, wow. I, I just pray, Lord, people would be encouraged to go back and read Scripture. And uh, with all of the words that I've said, I pray that exactly the ones that you know people need the most would stick. And uh, Lord, I thank you for this church and how we are devoted to seeking to understand your word, but not just to have head knowledge. Let it filter into our hearts and out into our actions. So Father, I thank you for that. And I pray that if there is anyone here who has not repented of his or her sins, turned by faith to Jesus Christ, that that person will do that today genuinely. Draw that person to yourself, O oh God. For those of us who know you and love you, encourage us, establish us, and strengthen us in our faith. We thank you and we, oh Lord, we love you. And we look forward to all that you're going to do in the days ahead. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.